a lot more cumbersome than they are today. Bulky, complicated to set up, uh, you know, all of the computers that we had when I was young included a monitor separate over here, a keyboard separate here, and then the, the tower, the computer tower, where the hard drive, the mechanisms, the, the CD-ROM compartments, if you remember those, were housed in this tower. And now, although we always called the whole setup together, the computer, well, in actuality, the truth was only the tower itself housed the real computer. The, the, those hard drives, the, the processors, things like that, those are the computer. And so what are the, these screens and keyboards? Well, they're our interface for interacting with the computer, aren't they? They're the instruments that we use to see what the computer is doing and telling us, and we use them to respond in inputting our own information. They are our means for engaging with that computer inside that tower casing that we cannot really, in truth, see or touch directly. Now, I wonder if you've ever thought much about how frequently we speak of our relationship with God in connection to we cannot see or touch Him. Christ Himself, the one instance where the fullness of deity does dwell bodily so that God has a physical form via by virtue of the Incarnation, well, even the incarnate Christ is ascended and in heaven. Even though Christ can, in principle, be touched, we cannot touch him since he is not bodily here with us on earth. The distance between the earthly and the heavenly realms can leave Christians at times with doubts, or at least disappointments, I think, about at least concerns about the fixity of our relationship with God. And this is why we, we hear things, well, even from devout believers at times, saying things like that prayer just feels like talking to the ceiling. And the problem is that sometimes the Christian life and our relationship with God seems, feels intangible. What if, though, what if our relationship with God is less like speculating and more, uh, yeah, what if it's less like speculating about and trying to communicate with, with whatever is stored inside an impenetrable vault and it's more like interacting with a computer? If that makes sense. What if God has designed the Christian life and our relationship with Him to be incredibly tangible? 
What if God has given us creaturely means to further our relationship with him and know his presence and help with us? And my claim is that just like you cannot see or touch the computer itself directly but have an interface system to to interact with it, well, so too God has very graciously provided tangible and trustworthy ways for us to engage Him. And so this sermon series that that Pastor Andy and I will be doing together explores these ordinary means of grace. And that phrase has come up a lot recently, you know, and that's a lot from me. And it's time to devote concentrated, devoted attention to unpacking what the ordinary means of grace are, how they work, and why they are so important and heartwarmingly helpful. Now, the the two poles, so to speak, that that are guiding my thought uh, about how I've I've thought of, thought about where this series would go are our experience, so one, our experience of our relationship with God, and then two, our concern to walk faithfully with Him. So I'm thinking about how to help us have assurance of God's love and presence with us. And I'm also thinking about how to encourage you in your pursuit of godliness. And the ordinary means of grace, in fact, are so relevant to both. Now, in, indulge me for just a minute longer. You've sort of gotten the shape of what this series is about. But let me let me ground our considerations in the short catechism. I think too many dismiss that this, this, uh, this catechism as an old sort of theoretical document. But let's pay attention to some of the things it says and connect it to our very, those two very pastoral concerns at hand. So question 29 asks, how How are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? Now think about that. That's a deep question, actually. I think we run past that one. Well, note the immensely personal aspect of thinking about it. How am I to partake, to receive, to experience the salvation that Christ has procured for his people? How am I to know it? And it says, we are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by His Holy Spirit. So we need to think about how we can encounter that effectual application of Christ to us by the Holy Spirit. So step one. Right? Then... Question 35, sort of, so thinking about our experience, our assurance of the Christian life, now that other poll, question 35 says, what is sanctification? 
What is the, the subjective benefit of Christ where I am not only freed from the penalty of sin as in justification, but also the power of sin? No, how can I know the freedom from the crushing power of sin over my thoughts, words, and deeds? Sanctification is a work of God, of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Note well that that we can get this. I think this is really crucial. Our, Our official position is that sanctification isn't your best effort to be better. It's not your cooperation with God unto a better life and improved behavior, but is a work of God's grace. Sanctification is something God does to you as a believer. And our question then is, how does God do this sanctifying work to us? And you can guess the answer, because we're considering the ordinary means of grace. But we need to unpack that. And so we have, we have though then before us two how questions. How do we encounter the effectual application? And how does God sanctify us? And Shorter Catechism 85 and 88 solidify our concerns for this sermon series. What does God require of us? That we may escape His wrath and curse due to us for sin. That's a pretty important question for everyone in this world. God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance unto life. Everybody's on the same page so far. With the diligent use of all the outward means. Whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. We think often about faith in Christ. I've done a whole series from, from this pulpit on repentance. And now we're thinking about those outward means that with the diligent use of them bring about the life of faith and repentance. 88 says, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us. The, so what are those means, right? And maybe that's the question that we've all... What are these ordinary means of grace? The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are His ordinances, especially His Word, sacraments, and prayer. And catch this phrase, all which are made effectual to the elect... For salvation. The scripture. Baptism and the supper. And prayer. Are the means. The monitor and the keyboard. right, Which God uses for us to interface with him. To receive Christ. And his glorious benefits. That we might have that life of faith. That we might be brought to and encouraged in faith. And repentance. So. We walk with God and God sanctifies us. By using the ordinary, outward means of grace. So our main point, finally we've gotten there. Our main point from Genesis 15 and 17 
is that God uses outward and ordinary means to drive his relationship with his people. God uses outward and ordinary means to drive his relationship with his people. And we're going to think about this in three points. Means of security, means of certainty, and means to the Savior. Those alliterate if you don't spell them correctly. They sound alliterated. But let's think first about means of security. Because those those passages in Genesis are about Abraham's life and how God made a covenant with him. That's the big payoff of chapter 15, right? Although these events took place long ago in a very foreign culture, nonetheless, we see things that connect so directly to our lives as we walk with God as well. I mean, just think about, put your eyes on, on Genesis 15, 1 to 6, and think about this with me. God had already in the past made great promises to Abram, even back in Genesis 12, and Abram had been walking with God for some time, seeing God's faithfulness to him. Still, when God stated again, think about this, right? Because this is how the interaction goes. God states his commitment to Abram again in Genesis 15.1. And how does Abram reply? Lord, what will you give to me? For I continue childless. Abram had God's had the direct promises of God and yet struggled to keep trusting that he had them. He had doubts. I imagine that we, we think in some ways, it, it, there's a way of reading this passage and thinking that Abram was presumptuous and high-handed with God to say forthrightly, like this, that he had these doubts. Regardless of the degree to which that may land for Abram, God responded in sheer grace by showing Abram the stars as a reminder of how greatly he would bless him. And then, all the more, he's given a promise he, he, he gives him an illustration, and all the more he solidifies this promise to Abram by being a covenant with him, as detailed in the rest of Genesis 15. Now here's the shocking thing, because we've kind of summarized that chapter, and that's what, that's where I want to get with it. What happens next? God makes a covenant with Abram, and then ch- chapter 16 is the story of how Abram took upon himself to produce this promised son by sleeping with Hagar rather than with his wife Sarah. In other words, God had made promises and and God had made a covenant with Abram, yet it still wasn't quite enough. It still wasn't quite enough to impress upon Abram the reality of God's sheer goodness to him. His sure goodness to him, his secure goodness to him. And so what does God then do? That's where we are. God made promises. God made a covenant about this thing that, that Abraham was still doubting. Abraham spirals into, into faithlessness about that very thing. 
And what does God do? What's God's response? In Genesis 17, God added circumcision to his covenant with Abram, changing his name to Abraham, intensifying. Abe is a, the A-B is essentially father of, in Hebrew, Am, father of a nation. Abe, Ra, father of many nations. God intensifies his promise. Right, changing his name to Abraham. And God's response to Abraham's ongoing doubts and sinful failures that spilled out of those doubts was to give a physical sign to Abraham to remind him of those covenant promises, to be those covenant promises. Notably, God does not change the covenant, nor make a brand new one. He adds a tangible sign onto it. He said in verse 10, This is my covenant. He's pointing to a thing and defining that thing as the covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. I've given you a physical mark that you see and you experience. And that is my covenant with you. Abraham's relationship with God was very tangible, we can see. And I would just say, Christian, do you struggle with doubts? Because God's response to Abraham was to give him a sign of the covenant. He provided tangible means of security to grant assurance. He has continued to do so. And, and so God's ordinary means of grace are given to us as, as tangible ways to encounter God and to know His promises when we have doubts and struggles. And so the means of grace are given for our assurance, for our security. But let's think second about means of certainty, about how these ordinary means of grace are for our certainty. Imagine a situation, right? If I if I asked you to meet during the week, at some point, your major questions are going to be where and when, right? Those, those are kind of the big ones that we need to know. Now, here in London, just think, what if my reply was, we'll sort it out as we go. Probably just run into each other. Well, in a city of nine million people, that's a wildly unhelpful approach, to say the least. It would be hugely unsettling, unsettling to have to guess where to find someone, to be left unsure about how to meet them. You want certainty about time and place to find whom you need. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Abraham 
had such doubts that we've already considered, even, I think this one is maybe new, so let's come in with me. He had these doubts even when during a period when God spoke directly to his people. We considered, uh, when we studied 1 Corinthians, we considered how prophecy and other miraculous gifts have ceased today. And I think that some, some imagine, on the other hand, that the way to have certainty and assurance is that if they had that sort of direct encounter with God, if God would only speak right to me, directly to me, then I would know and be at peace. But consider Abraham, to whom God did speak directly, and he still had doubts. God spoke on many occasions right to this man. God visibly made a covenant with Abraham by appearing to him as a, a smoking fire pot and completing that covenant ritual in that way. Nonetheless, Abraham still had so many doubts about God's promises that he spiraled into significant unfaithfulness to God's moral law. And so, it's a complete myth. And we might even go so far as to say a fabrication of Satan. Not, no get the precise thing that's coming, that mystical encounters with God are the surefire way to have a thriving walk with the Lord and know His will for our lives. Because we see in the Bible that that does not provide that surefire way. And that, though, if we take a step back, that should give us assurance today. That even though, even though God does not speak directly to us apart from His written word, we are no, we are in no lesser position than Abraham to progress in the Christian life. All the more we should take comfort that God has given certainty about meeting His people. As I was thinking about this, the, a scene from uh, one of the one of the songs in the old Pocahontas cartoon movie occurred to me as she runs through the forest singing about things, touching trees and and rocks and and stuff, and they all light up, showing their spiritual presence inside. Right, and I think too many people think that finding God is like that. If I know which tree to touch, if I know when to touch the rock. If I know the, if I could just figure out mystically the right time and place to be, then I would know God's presence. And I say, you don't have to fumble about in the world hoping that God will show up in some random encounter. God, God once pointed to the stars and Abraham still did not experientially grasp the assurances of God's promises. And so God appointed circumcision as a visible sign 
directly tied to the covenant. Circumcision shows the principle that still abides in our means today that God provides means of certainty to know how to encounter Him and how to have His promises. It's from the ordinary means of grace. Finally, let's consider that these are means to the Savior. Because I think the I think at this point, so means to the Savior, because I think, I think the lingering question is likely, how can we, as, as we're thinking about Genesis, how can we be sure that these facets of Abraham's life and his life with God transpose concerning the means of grace today and our life with God in the new covenant? How can we know that that principle elides across the Testaments? And at this point, excuse me, we need to see that circumcision was not simply God's response to Abraham, was not simply God's response to Abraham's objective struggle, but was a means, was a means that God used to apply Jesus Christ and his benefits to Abraham and the other believers during the Old Testament era. We've thought together in the past, this is, this is review in some ways, we, we've thought together before about God's one covenant of grace and how the substance is the same throughout and the illustration that in some ways got away from me has been that when you, when you buy ice cream at an ice cream shop, whether you receive it in a cup or a cone, the substance of your trip is nonetheless ice cream. And so, too, right, the Old Testament means of grace and the New Testament means of grace look different, like cups and cones look different. But they all deliver Jesus Christ. Westminster Confession 8.6. I'm not making this up. Our confession says, although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ until after his incarnation, yet, this is one of the most amazing phrases in our confession, I think. Yet, the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof of Christ's redemption the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices. The means of grace. Old Testament believers had faith in the Christ who would come, and we believe in the Christ who has come. And that's the difference. The difference in Old and New Testament faith is perspective. By that same sort of faith in Christ, every one of God's people has been saved by the Lord Jesus since the beginning of God's plan of grace, directly after the fall. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ 
Absolutely full stop. Jesus meant that. He didn't just mean it after the New Testament began. Now, does does the Bible teach that, well, the better question is going to be, how does the Bible teach us this point that that those means of grace, here particularly the, the, the types of the Old Testament, applied Jesus Christ? And let's think about Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Is there on your order of service? In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And here we see that Christians too, Christians also, like Abraham, receive a circumcision, which we receive in Christ. And and that circumcision is explained as by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Those two phrases mean the same thing. And, and we see that, so Christ's circumcision, the circumcision of Christ was his crucifixion. It was his putting off the body of flesh. And our circumcision in Christ occurs because of Christ's crucifixion. Where his body of flesh was put off on the cross as he was killed And his death was his ultimate circumcision. And then, our uh, trace the connection through these verses, our reception of that same reality, that saving reality of Christ's death is explained as having been buried with him in baptism. Circumcision was, in its core, instruction about Jesus Christ and the application of Jesus Christ. It taught that Christ would be cut off for his people since we were meant to be cut off from God for our sins. Circumcision then applied Christ and his benefits to to Old Testament believers because it was Old Testament baptism. I think I think most of the time we hear it baptism is New Testament circumcision. And the longer I've thought about this, I think that that's backwards because the Old Testament means of grace were applying Christ. Circumcision was Old Testament baptism because Christ has been cut off And cleansing comes to his people because of his death. Because of that, baptism has replaced circumcision as the outward mark of the same reality. The reality of Christ's saving work applied to his people. And as a passing note relevant for tonight, because baptism and circumcision convey the same reality... And because believers' children were circumcised, we have a clear foundation for baptizing the children of believers today as well. Circumcision was then about giving Christ to people. God giving Christ to people. As baptism is today. But we need to see 
how all of this theology of how God applies Christ to people using these outward means, that, that our practices in, in church and our use of the means of grace can be used at home, because our, right, you can use the word and you can pray at home. So we've got corporate means, private means. How are all these things not lifeless rituals that just do this? It's not magic. It's not. It's foolish to, to say that, that sitting under the preached word or spending time in prayer is dead ritual. Just like it is foolish to say that putting food in your mouth is dead ritual. You're just going through the motions of eating. No. That's the way that we receive nourishment. God has always been good to give Christ to His people. And Christian, God has not left us to guess where to find Him. That is a beautiful thing to consider. He has given us concrete means. Word. Sacrament. Prayer. So that we have tangible ways of walking with Him and being sanctified by Him. He marks His community with physical signs and actions so that we might be assured of His promises, have certainty where to encounter Him, and most importantly, receive the Savior through these means of grace. The phrase is most often that God works in mysterious ways. And maybe you've caught the title of tonight's sermon is that God works in ordinary ways. I would say it's still mysterious how God works through ordinary means. But nonetheless, he is at work in ordinary ways. The ordinary means of grace. Just like you cannot directly see or touch your computer itself, but use a screen to know what it is doing and use a keyboard to respond. So to God has given us His Word and sacraments to see what He is doing, what He has done, and given us prayer that we might respond, all that we might receive Christ and receive Him more fully every day. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful that you do not leave us to guess where we might find you. But you have given us, you have appointed them, you have affixed them as our means to engage with you. And we are thankful for that. Some might perceive these means as boring. And I say they are means accessible to all. They are beautiful because no one is cut off from them. A book, water, bread and wine, speaking to you. You have paved the way 
of our relationship with you, with these means to bolster our faith, to create our faith in the first place. As your word brings dead hearts to life. And we pray, God, that as we walk through this series together, that you might use this series, but also use your means of grace to help us appreciate your means of grace more. But not because of them in themselves. So that we might celebrate all the more richly that when we come together like this, when your word goes forth, when your sacraments are presented, when we pray, you apply Christ to us. We drink of Christ when we hear the word. We drink of Christ when we pray to you. Help us see how wonderful it is to have such an open font to the Savior you've given for us. Pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.